morning. Just before we um, look at our passage of scripture this morning, I just wanted to say as well one other, excuse me, one other last notice was that our pastor Matthew has been serving as our pastor for five years. Um, so I wanted to thank him. And I believe it's about eight years if we count his time as assistant pastor, but it would be good to um, remember that, that he's served as for five years. And I would thank his wife, Lisa, as well, but she's not here. And I know Matt feels that, and I feel that as well, um, especially this morning. I think Matt came up to me as the service was started, and he whispered in my ear, and he goes, do you know where your kids are? And I, and I looked at him, and I said, no. <laughs> and then he says... Me either. <laughs> and so, we, Matt, we thank you. Thank you for the way you open the word and teach and, and serve, and we thank Lisa as well. <clears throat> but the text this morning um, is from Romans chapter 15, and so the same passage that Matthew uh, read out to us during the call to worship was... Uh, the chapter of Romans, chapter 15. And as I began the week, I I thought I would have an outline of four points, and it's reduced down to two. Um, So we have two points to make, and we're going to look particularly at the first half of the chapter. Um, And in some ways, as we we came to church this morning, and we uh, remembered Liam, and we we prayed for him and sent him off to missionary training, I just want to say to Liam as well that the second half of Romans, chapter 15, is a particularly uh, wonderful chapter that I'm sure you'll enjoy looking at and, and will become very special to you over the years. So Liam in particular, if you could uh, have a look at that second chapter in your own time, that would be a great blessing, I'm sure. Uh, but we're going to look at the first half, the first problem, uh, the first point, sorry. First, <laughs> the first point is, uh, I've called it the problem of the law. And the second point is the problem of the people. So it's verses 1 to 7 and verses 8 to 13 that we'll be focused on. And so we'll see in the, in the first seven verses um, is what I've called, as I just said, the problem of the law. And now if you remember, when we looked at the 14th chapter of Romans, that chapter dealt with the subject of conscience issues. And we considered how Christians are to relate to each other when we have differing opinions and differing convictions, uh, not obviously in terms of uh, critical doctrines of the Christian faith, but in preferential matters. And so that subject, it continues into this first half of chapter 15 as well. And so in verse 1, if you look there and just skim through with me these first few verses, verse 1 exhorts the stronger brothers to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And in verse 2, It says the same thing, but it puts it in the positive way, and it says each of us is to please his neighbor. Verse 3, it holds forth Christ as an example for us to follow, and it says it like this, for even Christ did not please himself. And which is to say that Christ didn't just think of his own interests. He could have stayed with the glory uh, that he enjoyed in heaven with his Father and with the Spirit, but he condescended, lived, He bore reproach, was scoffed at, and was suffered, and and died on the cross ultimately, and he did all of those things for us. 
And so the, the idea is that he bore our weaknesses, and so surely we can bear with each other. If he did that, surely we can bear with each other. And we see this pattern um, often in the scriptures where Christ is held forth to us as an example, where Christ has done something incredible, and then we're exhorted to do something little. And so you'll see something like, um, you know, there'll be a command for us to love our wives. And we might say, oh, but you don't know my wife. <laughs> but that's a, in the scripture, that's a little thing, to love your wives because, and then the great thing, because Christ um, loved us so much that he gave his life for the church. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's the, that's the parallel that Paul's using there. But if you look back in verses 5 and 6, Paul prays for unity, which is his key subject. He prays for unity to reign in these matters. He says to be of the same mind with one another, so that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify God. And so unity is obviously what's being stressed to the church in Rome. And in verse 7, he sums up this whole section on preferential matters by saying that just as Christ has received us, which is with all our imperfections and our defects and our faulty thinking, he says, therefore, accept one another or to receive one another. And the word receive means to draw into close fellowship. It means to, um, to accept each other intimately. And so it's not just a superficial thing. And so this the simple command here sums up the whole section that started back at the start of chapter 14 in chapter 14 verse 1 by saying that this is how we are to relate to each other. He's saying there is no place in the church for excluding each other or for holding some at arm's length or only drawing into our friendships those that think different, differently on some of these preferential matters um, or it says to us not to look for a church where we, we want to find people only like ourselves. Um, and so when we don't accept each other, our foolishness is really shown because we, we see in verse 7, it ends by saying that we are to receive each other. Again, it compares it to Christ, just as Christ also accepted or just as Christ also received us. And, and if you were to think of Luke chapter 15, verse 2, you remember that Jesus, he was condemned by people for this. Um, but obviously it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. It says both, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, and they're speaking of Jesus, they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so that's how, <coughs> excuse me, that's how Jesus acted towards us. He received sinners. And John MacArthur makes the whole point of this whole section clear. And he says, when a Christian refuses to receive into his heart another Christian, he's saying in effect, I know Christ receives the worst of sinners, but I require more. And I trust you can see that that's, that's, a, that's a problem. It really is silly. And so some people uh, in this church, we might think they might be good enough for Christ to receive, but they are not good enough for us to receive. So that is a terrible a terrible way to think. But at face value, the first seven verses stress the need for the strong to bear with the weaker consciences of their brothers and not to tear down the work of God and damage their faith by imposing their freedoms on them. So where their consciences haven't yet been informed, uh, which would be in effect to cause them to sin or to cause them to stumble, 
by violating their own conscience because uh, I think at the end of chapter 14 it said, whatever is not from faith is sin. So if you even think something is sinful and you are pressured into doing it, you're doing something that you, you think is not pleasing to God and this, that's where the, the sin is generated, even if your conscience is not informed properly. So we don't stumble each other by putting those kinds of pressures on people. Um, but, but we also don't forget, as we looked at that chapter and continue here, that the strong were in fact right. They, they understood the Christian faith correctly, and the weak were in fact wrong. And so we can't forget that either. But the, the idea here is for both to receive one another and for the strong to patiently bear with the weak until they slowly start to see and to understand properly the freedoms that they have in Christ. And at this point, we could start by making some applications to our lives. We could give some similar examples and, and move on to the next point. But if we were to dig just a little more and to investigate just below the surface of what's being said here, uh, the 15th chapter actually starts to give us a glimpse of the cause of the differences that were troubling the church in Rome. And so this section has, in a general sense, so not absolutely, but in a general sense, it's been discussing two groups of people. Uh, it's been discussing, we've said, the strong and the weak. Um, but if you look at verse 8 in your Bible, at verse 8, these two groups are spoken of with different terms. So it's not always just the strong and the weak. Uh, one group is described as the circumcision in verse 8. And so I think we can all make the connection that that is talking about the Jews. And in verse 9, it says the other group is called the, the Gentiles. In verse 10, the Gentiles are spoken of alongside what's called his people, meaning God's people. The Gentiles are mentioned again in verse 11. They're mentioned twi uh, twice in verse 12, twice in verse 16, again in verse 18. Uh, and in verse 21, the Gentiles are described as those that had no news, they had not heard the good news, and they who have not heard. In verse 27, Paul speaks of the Gentiles sharing in the Jews' spiritual things. And so permeating the entire chapter, um, it's, not just, it's not just two generic groups of stronger and weaker brothers that sort of vacillate and, um, and are just generic. Uh, that was sometimes the case. Occasionally the Gentiles were the weaker ones, but generally in this situation they were, they were the stronger brothers. And the predominant reality behind these two groups and behind the difficulties of accepting each other was the reality of the merging of both the Jews and the Gentiles into the same church at Rome. And Paul's call for unity, which is through this whole section, all of chapter 14, the first half of chapter 15, was really a call for both Jews and Gentiles, which were two groups from radically different cultural backgrounds to accept each other. And so Paul was writing quite specifically, and he was addressing an actual problem in the church of Rome. I think later in the chapter he says, I, I wrote to you boldly on some points, and he's writing to them boldly uh, to urge them to unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And when we understand this, we can then be more specific when we come to apply it and make applications to our own life. And we can even st start to see why uh, 
Paul seems to move from, you remember, the gospel doctrines and all the theology in chapters 1 to 8, and then he took a three-chapter excursus and kind of started talking about the Jews and their relationship to Israel and, and the Gentiles and, and this, this plan of salvation and how it works. Um, that had a Jew-Gentile flavor to it as well, where he's unfolding the, 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 how redemptive history is playing out between those two groups. And so it's not unintentional that he did that. But, but we've just gone below the surface and we've seen that firstly, it's an, when we read the text, it's an exhortation to unity. Uh, and then we identified now that the, the, the problem really was between Jews and uh, Gentiles. Um, but even if we went a little further, we can even go down to another level and we can begin to identify what the root of the difference was between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the root of the matter was the different understandings of the role that the Mosaic Covenant or the Mosaic Law played in the life of the New Covenant believer. And so the Jews, um, and these were the two things mentioned in the 14th chapter, the Jews observed Sabbaths and they had certain dietary requirements and they, they weren't able to eat certain meats. Um, they weren't able to come to refiner's fire after the service this afternoon. But commentator Douglas Moo, he, he pinpointed this by saying, Paul's emphasis on the inclusion within the people of God of both Jews and Gentiles is not then simply an exemplary parallel to the problem of the weak and the strong. He says it gets to the heart of the problem. And then he says the dividing line between these two groups was basically the issue of the continuing applicability of the Jewish law the continuing applicability of the Mosaic Covenant to the life of these New Covenant believers. And so in other words, they were asking, how exactly are participants of the New Covenant to relate to the Mosaic Law? And so you can, you can see how this plays out in simple things like, should we still pay tithes? There was a tithe in the Mosaic Law, but as Christians, how do we work that through? And so that times... Dozens of issues is how is, is what this church is struggling with. And so that's what I find fascinating about this text. It's not just dealing with a historic problem where we need to first understand the principle and then extrapolate that to apply it to the different problems in our own day. Uh, we're not, we don't have to jump to like we, we prefer different chocolate bars or different flavors. Like There's, there's, there's something about that same problem um, that applies to us. And so now, now that we understand the root of the problem, we can see that these exact same differences still exist. They still divide and they still trouble even us as we go through life and work out how do we as Christians relate to the Mosaic Covenant. And so I find myself often discussing with people if we should still observe the Sabbath. Have you ever done that? So there's a Sabbath and it's in the Old Testament. And do we still observe it? Um, and so whole church movements differ on these same points. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, he identified this by saying, he said, there is perhaps no part of divinity attended with so much intricacy and where an orthodox divines, that's, that's good sound Christians, do so much differ as the stating the precise agreement and difference between the two dispensations of Moses and of Christ. And so right throughout church history, there has been an ongoing problem that's troubled the church, and it's the same problem that they had in Rome. 
how does the new covenant believer relate properly to the Mosaic covenant, to the Old Testament law? And, and what, I want to tell, what I want you to, to really, oh, I don't know what I'm trying to say, what I want you to really feel almost, like I want you to feel that problem and that tension, and, and I think I can do that by asking you one question. And so I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or identify yourselves, but I, I want you to, in your mind, to put yourselves on the spot and, and commit to answering the question. And so, so just I'll ask the question and you give a definite answer in your mind, or if you can't give a definite answer, then at least you can admit, I, I don't know. So this is the question. And are you ready? <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> Who said that? Archie? No. <laughs> All right, the question is, are you obligated as a Christian to observe the Ten Commandments? That's the question. Are you obligated as a Christian to observe the Ten Commandments? And so you should really be able to think yes or, or no, right? And so if maybe, maybe some of you answered yes, so you say yes, you are obligated uh, to, to obey them. And if you're obligated to obey the Ten Commandments, then you would be obligated to observe the Sabbath command. Would that be fair? It's one of the Ten Commandments. And if you're bound to observe the Sabbath, uh, you'd be bound to observe it on the seventh day. Would that be fair? That Exodus 20 verse 8 clearly stated that it was a a Saturday. (laughs) Excuse me. And also, uh, we see the pattern of creation, that God worked for six days and then he rested on the last. So some would call this a... um, I've forgotten the term, but a creation ordinance, that it's this eternal pattern, that it's working for six days and on the last day resting. Um, Or maybe you think you can change God's law and you could observe the Sabbath on a Sunday. Um, Or you could change God's law and you could uh, turn God's Sabbath into the Lord's Day. Um, And if you can change God's law, is that okay? Can we we change God's law? Is, Is God's law mutable? And so that, that's the kind of question there. But on the other hand, our question, initial question, it was, are you obligated as a Christian to observe the Ten Commandments? And, and so some of you might not have said yes. You might have said no, we don't have to. Um, but, but you may reason that passages like Romans 6.14, they say things like, we are no longer under the law, but we're under grace. So no, we don't have to. Um, but then people might start calling you an antinomian which means no nomos or no law. That you, um, Some would say that you've thrown God's law in the rubbish bin or that you've thrown out the entire Old Testament and that it somehow no longer applies to you, uh, that you might have no moral compass or no way to know how you might please God anymore. Um, maybe some people would argue that, that we have no law but that the Spirit just guides you And that the Christian faith just becomes some vague, rudderless ship that changes its course based on whatever vibe you're feeling or whatever you think God is trying to tell you by direct revelation. And so it distances you from the Word of God. Or maybe you'd argue that we're we're not under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of Christ. And so when we we think about it and we're trying to solve those problems, that's what's similar to what the the Roman church was, was grappling with. Um, some would accept that uh, would suggest we accept a division. So some people divide up the uh, Mosaic Covenant into the moral, civil, and ceremonial aspects. Have you heard that? I'm not. I'm not saying that that's not a good thing. It's it's useful in a lot of ways. 
Um, some, they say that the civil, uh, this is like, the, like we have civil laws like don't speed or, or things. So there were civil laws in the theocracy of Israel. They, they say that they would be uh, types of how we govern the church. So we don't take it literally, but they're trying to deal with the Mosaic Covenant. So they're, they're types, patterns or rules for how we might govern the church. Uh, the ceremonial are types that were fulfilled in Christ, like the Lamb. Um, and that the Ten Commandments are the pure expression of the moral law of God. And that's the aspect that remains, and they pull it into the New Covenant. But if we think about those things we just thought of, God's law being immutable and the Sabbath observance being on a Saturday is still problematic, even with those uh, helpful divisions. So we still haven't solved it. Others would suggest um, there's some more extreme views. You might have heard of uh, theonomy or theonomists. Um, and with being a very crude definition, but they would try to take the Mosaic law in its entirety, not divide it into three parts, and then apply it to not only the Christian church, but everyone in the world and say that's the, that's the true intent and that's how we give integrity to the, to the Old Testament and the Mosaic law. The whole thing is still applicable. And so with all those things, really I've just given you the tip of the iceberg, but the difficulties um, that arise when we, even ourselves, begin to try to wrestle with the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, they're, they're endless. They, they, it is a, it's a sinkhole of, of words, really, when we, when we get down to it. So whenever we are put on the spot and forced to say what we think regarding our relationship to the Mosaic Law, I think it's fair to say that clarity quickly diminishes. And so even for covenant theologians, who I'm told have the relationship of the biblical covenants all nailed down, that their system's the biblical system, they still can't come to a consensus on the Mosaic covenant either and have a whole number of internal debates trying to resolve this very same thing. So this is still a huge problem for us today. And when we're honest... Every option that we take seems to have some kind of weakness. Have you ever felt like that when you're talking about the Mosaic Law? You can't quite get your hands around it. Um, and so, so this is what I'm trying to say is it's not just an ancient problem. We feel it um, very much here and now as well. Another man uh, by the name of Anthony Burgess, he was a, a member of the Westminster Assembly um, that, that wrote and was that a, member, a number of pastors put together the, the Westminster Standards. He says, I do not find in any point of divinity learned men so confused and perplexed. And then he gives this picture like being like Abraham's ram hung in a bush of briars and brambles by the head as here. So we just get caught up in this trying to understand the Mosaic law. But I think when we come to this book that we've been looking at, the book of Romans, this epistle to the Roman church, I think it's a good place where we can look and start to make some progress in these questions. And so if you'd turn with me to Romans chapter 7, Paul gives us a really helpful analogy, and if you can even think of yourself from a Jewish perspective... This is a very helpful analogy to a Jew that honored and loved the, the Mosaic uh, law and Mosaic covenant because he gives an analogy and, a, and sometimes a picture is so much clearer than words, isn't it? So he says, Or do you not know, brethren, 
And he says, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So he's speaking to Jewish people. He says that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. And, and this is his picture. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law. Concerning the husband, oh, sorry, sorry, released from the law concerning the husband. Verse 3, so then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another. So there were two husbands. There was a clean end to one relationship and there was a clean legal start to another covenantal relationship. And so the illustration, the picture that he uses is the picture of marriage, that you're bound by the marriage covenant until death ends the obligations. And and death truly ends all of the obligations to that covenantal relationship. But then what he does is really helpful. He applies it to the relationship that the Jews had with the Mosaic covenant. So in verse 4, if you look there, he says, Therefore, my brethren, <coughs> excuse me, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, joined to something else, to him, which speaks of Christ, who was raised from the dead. And to be joined to him is to be joined to him in the new covenant. Um, so just as Death ends the obligations of the marriage covenant. Christ's death, in a similar way, ends the Jews' relationship to the Mosaic covenant. And they can legitimately leave it behind and be joined to the new covenant. And this really helps us understand that the Mosaic covenant, including its Sabbath observance, its feast days, its festivals, the sacrifices and the stipulations are no longer binding on them, and they're no longer binding, obviously, on on those of us that are Gentiles as well. So they're no longer binding. But as you can imagine, when when the Jews who had lived their entire lives under the commands of the Mosaic law, these rituals and laws, it was extremely hard for them to leave it all behind. They, they still wanted to cling to them. They still thought that they must, surely, they, they're in the word of God. These things must be pleasing to God. And so in their consciences, that's why we call these, this chapter about conscience issues, in their consciences, they thought that they still needed to be observed. And this was a huge dilemma in the early church because the Gentiles who came in came from pagan backgrounds They had absolutely no scruples about any of those things. They didn't feel an ounce convicted uh, by honoring a particular day or not eating certain things. Uh, And so to to these religious Jewish people, these loose pagans would have just looked like almost godless and not honoring to God. And so they they started looking down on each other and judging each other. Um, But I want to give ourselves some more clarity as we understand this and how it relates to us. And I'm going to make a statement, and I would suggest to you that when we think about the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, you can completely let go of every command and law and stipulation of the Mosaic covenant because 
the entire moral law that was undergirding all of those commands is also instantiated in the new covenant. And so the, the moral law was in the Old Testament. It was in the Mosaic law, and there, it played out with certain practical laws and stipulations, but the heart of it, the moral law, was the root that was there. And so like, you can have, I actually don't know what this is, but what is this a husk with the kernel or something in the middle? There's the kernel, that's the thing that has to be kept, and there's the outward husk that played out in certain practical ways to the people of Israel, suitable to their time, suitable to the covenant that they were under, and then that can all be left behind. But when the new covenant is made, the same moral law, that same uh, that, that, that law that reflects the very character of God is still instantiated, which means there's an instance of it also in the new covenant. And so we can, and we even see in the new covenant where, where we see the law summed up in certain principles to love God with all your heart, to love your neighbor. We can work out, we, can, we have the, the, I guess, the, the inner, um, more clear perspective that we can then apply to all the different situations of our life, but they don't have to be the specific ways uh, that Israel did. And so the Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, and obviously we don't have that uh, same sign of this new covenant to observe it in that way, but you can let go of every command, law, and stipulation of the Mosaic Covenant because the entire moral law that was undergirding all of those commands is also instantiated in the new covenant. And so in the, in the words of Romans 14... And verse 5, <laughs> you'll remember that Paul introduced this conscience issue about the, the Sabbath. He said, one person regards one day above another. So certain days had certain meanings like the Sabbath. And he said, another regards every day alike. And so there were some that just walked through and they, they didn't give particular observance. So, so that command, it includes the Sabbath. And I could say it like this. The strong didn't have to observe the Sabbath. And so we could, we could look at a number of things, and I think I've spent too long on this point already, but I hope that's some help to you in terms of uh, starting to navigate some of those issues in the, in the relationship to the Mosaic Law. Um, but strong believers don't get weighed down by trying to drag aspects of the Mosaic Covenant into the New Covenant. Um, they, they aren't antinomian either, so we have quite a sharp, what's called a sharp discontinuity, but we're not open to the charge of antinomianism, which means no law, because the same moral heart of God's law is instantiated in the new covenant as well. Um, and that's in its entirety, not, not parts of it. The whole moral law is in the new covenant. So that's why I called the, the first point was the problem of the law, because that is, a, is somewhat of a problem to many of us, many in Rome, many of us. Um, but my second point is called the problem of the people. And so these Jews and these Gentiles, or you could even in some ways think the problems when people start to discuss the church in Israel. Um, my second point, uh, you can see this in verses 8 to 13. And to back up and reinforce the idea that the Jews and Gentiles in Rome were to accept one another. That's the overall, overarching uh, command there, to accept one another. To back that up, Paul here pulls out four aces to prove his point, and he takes four quotes from the Old Testament. 
that all speak of the Gentiles being included in God's people. So in verse 9, he quotes Psalm 18, verse 49, where David wrote, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. In verse 10, he quotes from the law, uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, and he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And for those of you that are sharp and can follow me here, he says, with his people. He doesn't say rejoice, O Gentiles, as his people. So it's a subtle but important word there. Verse 11, he quotes Psalm 117, verse 1. He says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And in verse 12, this is the fourth quote, he quotes the prophet Isaiah from chapter 11, verse 10, and he says, There shall come the root of Jesse, or the shoot of Jesse, as if it's been cut off and there's a little shoot growing up. And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles uh, shall hope. And so the intended effect of these four quotes is that by the clear and repeated testimony of every part of the Old Testament, that's the law, the prophets, and the writings, he quoted from each different part to make it really comprehensive. Like he's trying to say, this is what the word of God says. There is no doubt that God has included the Gentiles into the people of God. And therefore, he's saying, if God had accepted them, the church in Rome was surely to also accept them. And so again, at first glance, when we think of these, these verses, um, that, that's the meaning, and it's very clear. But we skipped over verse 8. And there's something important said in verse 8. It's... It starts by saying, for I say, <coughs> and one commentator, quoting another commentator by the name of Cranfield, he says, the sense redundant opening verb, so this, these words, I say, has a rhetorical purpose, signifying that what follows is an especially, and he calls it an especially solemn doctrinal declaration. And in a sense, it summarizes one of the central motifs of the entire letter. And so if you can... Uh, appreciate where we stand in the, in the grand scheme when we think of the whole book of Romans and where, where, where the verses we're looking at and where they sit. Verse 13 is the conclusion to the whole body of the main argument of Paul's letter. And so he's actually finishing and wrapping up in verse 13 that we just read. Um, the doctrinal section was in chapters 1 to 8. Uh, chapters 9 to 11, I guess a doctrinal as well, but that was that... Um, Explain the continuing faithfulness of God to the Jewish people, even though that doesn't appear to be the present situation. So there was this rejection of the Jewish people, and Paul was explaining that God will still now and in the future be faithful to his promises. Uh, in chapter 12, verse 1, you remember that, that great verse in chapter 12, verse 1, that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We, we transitioned into the practical application of the book, and that runs all the way through to chapter 15, verse 13, which is the verses we're just ending and looking at now. Um, this is a section of our exhortations to practical living. And so as we approach the second half of chapter 15, all we have remaining afterwards is chapter 16 in the second half of this chapter, which is Paul's farewell and his final greeting. So this ends the, the doctrinal section, the main body of what Paul's saying. Um, but I say all of that so that you can appreciate that verse 8 is the final word of Paul's argument. 
And when you're getting to the end of something, what do you do? You often, often you want to draw some conclusions or say something that summarizes everything in a, in a really condensed way. And so we, we have one of those um, statements in verse 8, and it says, For I say, which we remember means that what follows is something important, For I say that Christ has become a servant to circumcision. The word the is not actually in the original. It's just circumcision, which relates it straight directly to the Abrahamic promises. Uh, For Christ has become a servant to circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And verse 9 says, And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. And for all the differences that exist between, you might think of like just broadly as dispensational or reformed exegetes, this verse is really critical um, because it sets the pattern for understanding the biblical covenants and, and concerns things like how the church and Israel relate. Um, we could read these verses as saying, God has clearly accepted the Gentiles into the one people of God, which he has. We don't want to deny that, but these verses are more specific, and they say more than that. They say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father, and second part to what he's saying, and for the Gentiles. And so there's two groups identified. There's the Jews to whom were given the promises, which is how we would interpret the promises, keeping that in mind that they were given their promises Or in order to show, the wording here means that in order to show that God is faithful to his promises, and he ropes that in with the promises given to the Jews, and the Gentiles who were not given the promises. So Abraham does include the Gentiles, if you remember, um, in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, that all the nations would be blessed, but they were not the direct object of the promises. They were, though you remember the terms Paul uses are they were grafted in, or in the New Testament they'll be fellow heirs or joint heirs uh, with, with these Jewish people. So they receive, um, according to the words of John Scott, they received uncovenanted mercy. The Jews were promised particular promises that God had to be faithful to do it, and God will still be faithful to do it. Um, but the, the Gentiles are brought in on the basis of uncovenanted mercy. And here we see, um, playing out in time and space, Matthew, but here we see evidence of what, come, uh, what some call the Jewish priority. Uh, and that may not be the most helpful term to use, um, but I use it because others do. And it's to be taken in a historical, redemptive sense Um, But we can see that Paul has consistently alluded to this throughout his epistle, and this might make it more clear for you. This is his own covenantal hermeneutic, as it were, that Paul's using when he thinks about the biblical covenants. In Romans 1.16, you'll remember this. Paul said his gospel was for all who believe. Is that true? Did he stop there? Or did he say his gospel was for all who believe? And then he added a strange phrase, didn't he? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you remember that? So, And it wasn't a meaningless statement. He, he, he knows what he's doing when he speaks. Um, do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 24? So there was a Gentile lady came and begged Jesus for mercy, 
And it seemed as if Jesus was ignoring her. And, and when you read it, it's startling. It's, it's a shocking story. <coughs> and Jesus says to this lady, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Do you remember that? Uh, but Jesus went even further and he said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs, meaning the Gentiles, feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And again, that, that seems strange, doesn't it? What a, what a strange encounter that, that this lady has just had with Jesus. And, and, and Jesus does have mercy on that lady. I was about to skip over without saying that. He does embrace and welcome the Gentiles. But he's still saying something here. He, he's, it wasn't a meaningless statement from Jesus either. This is the biblical pattern, and many people overlook it. Why do you think Paul used the analogy of the olive tree in Romans chapter 11? And he pictured the Gentiles, they're not just like two branches of the same thing. He pictured the Gentiles as wild olive shoots, and he pictured the Jews as natural branches. There's a difference there. They're both grafted in. They're both totally part of the same thing, sharing in the root and fatness of this olive branch. But there's a distinction also made between wild and natural and because this also pictured that same Jewish priority, it was the Jewish root that supported the engrafted Gentile branches. And when Paul even warned the Gentile, you remember he warned the Gentile branches, those ones that have been grafted in, not to be arrogant or to ignore this. And he said, it is not you, it's not these Gentiles who support the root, but the root that supports you. And so Paul is consistently making this little subtle distinction all the way through his letter. And so um, as we look at this eighth verse, he, he wishes to, uh, to reinforce it here again. And so he concludes the argument from his epistle, uh, making this point. And what is clear is that the direct recipient of the Abrahamic promises, the direct recipient, not all of the recipients, are Jewish. And God is faithful to the word that he spoke to them. And even the words uh, Christ has become. So in verse 8 it says Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. That, that, that term has become is, is in the perfect tense, meaning this is still ongoing and not something that has been completed in the past and we forget about it. You can't just say, oh, he's done that. He's engrafted the, the Gentiles. And now redemptive history moves on. We erase this distinction, and uh, it just blends into this one simple thing. No, there's, there's something there that, that, that's in the perfect tense. Paul is saying something in the way he's using the language. And so God is faithful to the Jews, and the Gentiles have been added by grace. And so you can think really broadly of these, <coughs> excuse me, these biblical covenants by thinking God made actual promises to an actual people, and God has to fulfill what he said to these people, and if God was out of his pure mercy to accept other people who he hadn't promised and bring them in, he hasn't broken his promise to the original, and he's able to do that. that that's, how, that's how it works. So that's the, the subtle distinction that we make, um, and, and that's reflected in our statement of faith as well. Of, of We believe it's a biblical uh, little subtle nuance, but very helpful, especially when we think of what God will do in the future with the Jewish people. But all the Gentiles have been added by grace, and the Gentiles are equal. I want to stress that as well. 
There's, 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 we're all one in Christ Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. So there is an equality that I don't want to undermine. Um, that's why I say a historical redemptive in the, in the way that God plans and navigates and will run the course of history. And seeing the covenants in that sense, there's a priority. Um, but in Paul's mind, there, there's a covenantal priority or order to such an effect that you can't understand properly the relationship between the biblical covenants and the order and history of redemption without allowing for this dynamic. So we must notice it. And if we were to consider um, aspects of the Abrahamic promises that are yet unfulfilled, we can see that the promises made to the circumcision are always fulfilled to the original recipients, to the Jewish people. They always at least have to be fulfilled to the people they were spoken to. And I, and I would, I'd like to spend more time on this point as well, but just know that when you look at verse 8, there's a lot at stake, um, and it's a very subtle, but it's a very important nuance that we would, we would see and, and notice, not just there, but, but like I said, permeating the whole of um, Paul's epistle uh, and the intent in which he wrote, and uh, also in Jesus and, and the ministry there as well. But so the... So yeah, so we are. We're blessed equally with all the spirit, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And yes, we're blessed in the same way. We're not included into the people of God in different ways. It's both by faith in Christ and his finished work um, and even included into the same people. But yet unfulfilled promises to the Jewish people will still be fulfilled um, because as Paul shows here, the initial promises must be fulfilled to whom they were made. Um, and so to understand the connection as well between the two groups here, there's, it's like a causal relationship, so that it's through God fulfilling His word to the Gentile, uh, to the Jews, that the Gentiles are blessed. That had to happen first, and then the Gentiles are blessed. And for us, which most of us are, are Gentiles or people from the nations, Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. But even the Gentiles or the nations are blessed by the crumbs that fall from the master's table. <laughs> and I hope you're thinking as you think of that, that illustration, you're like, wow, even just a crumb of this bread makes me think of what Matthew's been to you. Even just a crumb is enough. Isn't that an incredible bread? But that, <laughs> excuse me, that brings us to the, the conclusion really of the this whole main body, this main part of the book of Romans. Um, and it's been a, an incredible, um, I guess just an incredible thing to, to, we've really not done it justice and just jumped through chapters at a time and, and move really quickly. We'll look next week at the, um, the concluding chapter uh, 16 and the, maybe some of the end of chapter 15. Um, but man, when we think of it, we... Excuse me. We can think that, that that thread of Jew and Gentile ran through the whole thing. Like I said in one sixteen, it's the gospel to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Uh, we see that when Paul um, was talking about sin in chapters one and two, he addressed it to two groups of people: to the unrighteous and the self-righteous. And again, it's the Jew and the Gentile in his mind. Uh, he, he shows that the the Gentiles are guilty of breaking or rejecting God because they violate their own conscience, the law of God written in their hearts, and because of creation, they know that, that God is true. Uh, the, Gentile, uh, the Jews sorry, had the special revelation of God that knew the law, and they couldn't keep it, that it revealed this holy standard. And then in, obviously, chapters 3, 4, and 5, 
We just see the wonderful theology that, that God saves by faith, that he justifies us by an alien righteousness. And, and we've, I guess we've looked at a book where people just treasure so much um, as it opens the way of salvation to us. But let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we, <coughs> excuse me, as we think of uh, this book that we've been looking through and the, the truth that you've revealed to us, Lord, you have, you've opened the way of salvation to us that by um, our own works we can in no way uh, meet your holy standard. But you have provided a way through the person of Christ that through mere faith in him, by trusting in him and his finished work, you impute to us and treat us as if we'd lived his perfect life and as if we'd met your perfect holy standard. And you impute to him our sin and treat him as if he committed and lived our sinful lives. And Lord, you solve the riddle of salvation. You open the doors and, and make it so clear to us. But Lord, we pray that as we have seen these things and know these things, Lord, we pray that there would people that would accept these things. We ask this in Jesus' name.